From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. The end of the Supreme Court's term is always a momentous time of year for our guest and At Liberty regular, David Cole. David is the ACLU's legal director and our resident Supreme Court expert. This episode, he'll help us answer how the court's new conservative supermajority has impacted its decisions on the term civil rights and civil liberties cases. We'll also take a peek at the upcoming term, which is set to be a nail-biter. The court could decide on the fates of reproductive rights, affirmative action, and gun rights. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Molly. David, let's start with a 6,000-foot view. I feel like there was a lot of anxiety predating the term's beginning with what this court's new 6-3 conservative majority would mean for civil rights and civil liberties. And I'm wondering now that we have all the decisions in, were those anxieties founded? So I think with the very notable exception of the decision on the Voting Rights Act, the court largely confounded the predictions that it would decide cases on a six to three basis, that it would veer sharply to the right, that no liberal causes would ever have a chance of succeeding uh, ever again. In fact, the court decided most of its consequential cases um, by large margins with liberals and conservatives joining in decisions that were decided narrowly precisely in order to get people with different views to agree. And in a series of criminal cases, the court uh, reached liberal results with many of the court's right-side justices parting company with their colleagues and joining the liberals to support pro-criminal defendant results. So this kind of confounding of expectations, were you surprised by that? Well, yes and no. So, you know, on the one hand, I think people misunderstand the way the court operates. The court's legitimacy as an institution depends on it not acting like Congress, not acting like the president, not acting like state legislators. If it acted politically, if it decided all of its cases by who appointed the justice, there would be real questions as to why we should follow its decisions. It is supposed to be bound by law, not by politics. And the rule of law is supposed to rise above political division. And I think the court succeeded this term anyway in advancing the rule of law, in rising above partisan division by, as I suggested earlier, trying to decide cases uh, fairly narrowly rather than taking the broad positions that advocates on both sides urge the court to adopt. Do you think, given the 6-3 conservative majority, that this kind of incrementalism was the best we could have hoped for? Yeah, absolutely. And it's probably the best we can hope for going forward. You know, in order for liberals to win a case that divides along conservative and liberal lines, you have to appeal to at least two conservative justices, right? And one of the ways that we appeal to a conservative justice is don't act according to type. Don't act like a political actor. You can't say that to Mitch McConnell. You can't say that to a member of the Senate because their job is to be a political actor. But the job of a justice is to rise above politics, to decide cases on the law. And I think most of the justices on the court understand 
deep in their bones that the institution's legitimacy rests on their not appearing, at least, to be deciding cases on a partisan basis. And this term, I think they largely succeeded in that. And that's something that Chief Justice Roberts cares deeply about, not having the court seem like political parlaying, that it has to seem nonpartisan. In particular, Chief Justice Roberts is no longer the swing vote, because before that, he was sort of the swing vote. And last term, we had a number of very big five to four decisions in which Roberts joined with the liberals and departed company with the rest. But once RBG died and Amy Coney Barrett takes her place, now you have to get Roberts and somebody else in order for uh, the liberals to be on the winning side of any dispute. And so people thought, well, it's no longer the Roberts court. But I think this tactic of deciding cases narrowly and seeking a broad consensus by focusing on narrow decision-making is a trademark Roberts approach. He has championed what he calls minimalism for his entire time on the bench, which is that if we can decide a case narrowly, we should. And one of the reasons it's good to decide cases narrowly is precisely because you can get people who have very different worldviews to agree if all you're asking them to agree on is a very narrow proposition. If you try to decide a case based on some broad principles, well, then, you know, the, the liberals aren't going to agree to the broad principles that the conservatives want to advance, and the conservatives aren't going to agree with the broad principles that the liberals want to advance. So minimalism is the way to consensus. And this year, this term, we saw that. We saw it in the Affordable Care Act case. We saw it in our case, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia involving Catholic social services. We saw it in a human rights case uh, alleging that Nestle's was supporting child slave labor in Africa. And we saw it in our case uh, involving Brandy Levy, the cheerleader. All of those cases were decided by 7 to 8 or 9 0 results. And we are going to get to a bunch of those cases, but I do want to turn to what happened today with the Voting Rights Act, where the split was very much the conservative justices on one side and the liberals on the other. And this is the case on voting rights and whether Arizona's voter rules violated a part of the Voting Rights Act that deals with disparate impact. Can you tell us what that case was and what was decided today? Sure. So this is a case about uh, how the court should interpret a very important provision in the Voting Rights Act known as Section 2, which prohibits all voting practices that deny equal opportunity to minority communities uh, with respect to voting. And the case today involved two particular voting practices in Arizona, but the broader question was how do you interpret this provision of the Voting Rights Act that Congress put in place to ensure equal voting opportunity for all people, regardless of race. I think in a very disappointing decision, decided the case six to three with all the Republicans on one side, all the Democrats on the other, and the majority justices who proclaim to be textualist, who proclaim to be bound by the words that Congress has put forward, went off the text entirely and superimposed on the text of the Voting Rights Act a whole set of considerations, which, you know, I think they they sort of articulated as prerequisites, which will make it very difficult for voter suppression practices to be successfully challenged uh, in the courts. This was a law that was designed to open up access to the vote, to ensure equal and open voting opportunities. But the court today read the statute in such a way 
that it will be very much harder for us and others to challenge the kind of voter suppression measures that have been put in place in Georgia, Texas, uh, Florida, uh, and the like. Can you tell us who specifically this impacts the most? Who is going to have a harder time voting now? Well, it's going to be generally poor people, people who have challenges getting to the polls, Native Americans who live on reservations, people who can't get the day off to vote, and uh, minority communities. Because what this law was designed to do, what the Voting Rights Act was designed to do, was to say, even if you have a neutral voting practice, neutral on its face, if you can show that it, in practice, affects African-American voters or Latino voters or Asian-American voters or Native American voters disproportionately, it's invalid. And that's disparate impact. Right. And the court today did not entirely get rid of disparate impact as a theory, but it made it much, much more difficult for those challenging these voter suppression measures, things like you know, limiting where people can vote or cutting down on early voting or, uh, you know, getting rid of drop boxes or not allowing people to collect ballots and bring them in. All of those things, um, which in many places have a disparate impact on minority voters, they are enacted because they have a disparate impact on minority voters, because Republicans assume that minority voters are not going to vote for Republicans. And so they are happy to suppress their votes. But the Voting Rights Act came out of the Jim Crow era. It came out of the 1960s. It was designed to ensure that exactly these kinds of practices, which were endemic in the country at that point, would be off the table. Unfortunately, those practices still exist, and the Republicans are ginning them up in response to the the last election. And the, the Republican members of the court just made it much harder for people to challenge those practices. You know, I'm curious, given the court already gutted Section 5 of the VRA in the 2013 Shelby County case, how effective is the Voting Rights Act in being able to do what it was supposed to do when Johnson made it law? Where are we with the Voting Rights Act now? In the Shelby County case, when they invalidated Section 5, which was the provision that required certain places that had a history of discrimination to have to pre-clear any change in voting practices with the Justice Department, demonstrate that they don't have a disparate effect on minority voters before they can even put them in place. That was a huge blow to equal opportunity for voting in this country. What was left after that was Section 2. And that Section 2 says that states don't have to get preclearance from the government, but they can be sued. They can be sued by the Justice Department. They can be sued by private individuals or organizations. But now the burden is on the sewer, the person who is bringing the case, to, to demonstrate that the law has a disparate impact. And the court today just made that burden much, much harder. In the wake of those two decisions, the Voting Rights Act has really been sort of nullified in a, in a very significant way. It still exists. We will continue to challenge these voter suppression practices. We will win some of those cases, to be sure, but they have made it much harder for us to do so and therefore much easier for those who want to make it hard for people to vote, for those who want to suppress the vote to achieve that end. I want to also mention that Justice Kagan wrote the dissent for this decision, and it was remarkable. I mean, it, it was like a, a history lesson in American history. And, and I actually just wanted to read a passage of it and ask you to react to it. 
So she wrote, democratic ideals in America got off to a glorious start. Democratic practice, not so much. The Declaration of Independence made an awe-inspiring promise to institute a government deriving its just powers from the consent of the governed. But for most of the nation's first century, that pledge ran to white men only. The earliest state election laws excluded from the franchise African Americans, Native Americans, women, and those without property. And she concluded that the Voting Rights Act represents the best of America and also reminds us of the worst of America because it was and remains necessary. And the thing that really struck me about this is that this really seemed to get to a fundamental divide among the justices, and that's in how we read racial discrimination and how we remedy racial discrimination in this case. And it's not just along voting rights. This came up in decisions about drug resentencing this year. It's come up before in cases about affirmative action. And I'm just curious, you know, how meaningful is it for civil rights that the justices who feel we live in a post-racial society are the ones in control right now? Not good. Not good. So Justice Kagan's dissent in this case is a incredible. I mean, the, no one writes dissents like Justice Kagan. It is a must read and it is a history lesson. I mean, I think in some states it would be treated as critical race theory. Well, I was going to say, this is the conversation that's also happening outside of the realm of the Supreme Court with the debate over critical race theory and how to teach, you know, K through 12 American history. Right. I mean, you know, and I, I'm joking when I say that her decision is critical race theory, but, you know, it is basically, you know, what you read is a critique uh, that says the United States has a set of principles and ideals, and it also has a history that has failed consistently to match those ideals and particularly failed in the area of racial justice. And that is the truth. And she speaks the truth in that dissent. Sadly, the majority, you know, really doesn't even address it. It basically says, well, that history is not that relevant. What we're doing is interpreting the statute. But as she points out in her dissent, the statute comes out of that history. All right. Well, let's turn to some of the less bad decisions. Let's start with Fulton. So this is Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. Can you tell us what that case was about and then where the court fell on that one? Sure. You know, th this is a case we were involved in. It involved uh, Catholic social services, which in the city of Philadelphia certifies families as proper foster care families as, you know, adequate families to take in kids that the city has in foster care. And they do it under a contract from the city, as do about 28 other organizations in Philadelphia. And that contract says, when you're certifying families as appropriate for foster care, you can't discriminate. You can't discriminate on the basis of race, sex, sexual orientation, etc. Catholic Social Services says, we're opposed to same-sex marriage. And so we will not certify any family, no matter how competent they otherwise are to have a foster care kid, if they are a same-sex family. And Philadelphia says, well, if you're not going to abide by the terms of our contract, which requires that you exercise this power in a non-discriminatory way, you don't get the contract. And Catholic Social Services sues and says, we have a First Amendment right under the free exercise clause of the First Amendment to get $2 million a year from the city to perform a government function, the certification of these families, and to refuse to abide by the terms of the contract because we object 
to uh, same-sex marriage. And we supported the city in the case below. We intervened on behalf of a foster care families organization. And we won in the district court. We won unanimously in the Court of Appeals, you know, because the notion that you have the right to get money from the government to perform a government service and to discriminate while you're doing so in violation of the government's terms is a remarkable position. But that is the position that the Catholic Social Services took. And they were asking the Supreme Court to announce a First Amendment free exercise license to discriminate. The court ruled for Catholic Social Services but it did not announce a license to discriminate. The court said, well, look, if you've created this this opportunity for individualized exemptions from the non-discrimination requirement, you have to explain why you're not giving an exemption to this organization, which has a religious justification for an exemption, and you haven't adequately uh, supported it. But that really turned on that particular provision in the contract, a provision that had never been employed by the city ever. I mean, so it's so they could easily take it out of the contract. It wouldn't change anything, but it won't have effect for you know any other uh, city or any other program as long as they don't have that kind of provision in the contract. And that led Justice uh, Alito and Justice Gorsuch to complain in separate opinions that this opinion was really no more valuable than something written with that disappearing ink that you can get in magic stores. Because once the city takes away this particular provision of the license, they can deny Catholic Social Services the ability to certify these families if they continue to discriminate. And not to agree with them, but is there a little bit of truth that right now this debate between civil rights on one side and religious liberty on the other is very muddy as far as the Supreme Court rulings go. Like there isn't a lot of clear direction on where that should go. I mean, we had Masterpiece Cake Shop a few years ago where, you know, a same-sex couple tried to get a cake for their wedding and was turned away. These decisions are very narrow. So, you know, where where does this decision fall into that larger debate? So I think it's, this decision is very much like the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision. And in both cases, you had the religious right coming in in and saying, we have a First Amendment right to discriminate. When you have a general law that says you can't discriminate, if we believe because of our religious conscience that we need to discriminate, we shouldn't have to follow that law. And in both cases, the court refused to announce such a right. In both cases, it ruled in favor of the religious you know, objector, but it did so on very narrow grounds that were particular to the case and avoided uh, deciding the broader question. And so that broader question remains to be decided. In the lower courts, though, by and large, the lower courts have, have ruled consistently, no, you don't have a right to discriminate because you have a religious belief that discrimination is justified. Are we really going to give people an out from every general law, if they come forward and say, look, I'm opposed to it on religious grounds, it would be anarchy. Right. I, I want to stay on the First Amendment for just another minute and turn to a case that you actually argued. And this is the case about Brandy Levy. Can you tell us what that case was and, and what the decision was? This is a classic ACLU case. Brandy Levy was a high school freshman. She didn't make the varsity cheerleading team. She didn't get the position she wanted on the softball team. Exams were coming up, and she's sitting uh, at a local convenience store uh, with her friend on the weekend, and she sends out a Snapchat that says, fuck school, fuck cheer, fuck softball, fuck everything. 
you know, basically just expressing her frustration. And, you know, we may not have used those terms, but who among us did not feel that way at some point, you know, during high school? She sent it just to her friends on Snapchat, designed to disappear within 24 hours, except when someone takes a screenshot of it. uh, And someone did here take a photograph of, of a screenshot of it and showed it to the cheerleading coach. And she was kicked off the team for a year for having done this. And her parents said, that's that's not right. And so they called the ACLU. And the ACLU of Pennsylvania thought, hey, you know, we'll write a demand letter. This is clearly unconstitutional. You cannot kick someone off the team simply for expressing her frustration outside of school, on the weekend, on her own time, on her own dime. Um, surely the, the, the school will, will back off. So they wrote the demand letter. The school did not back off. They sued. The school did not back off. They got an injunction and almost immediately from the district court, and she was back on the cheerleading team. The school continued to pursue the case. They appealed it to the Third Circuit. The school lost unanimously in the Court of Appeals, but still the school did not give up, and they appealed it to the Supreme Court. And the question in the Supreme Court was, should schools have the same authority to regulate kids' speech outside school as they have inside school. And that was the position that the school took. They said, look, in the internet age, there's no real difference between inside and outside. And we need to be able to regulate kids' speech wherever it happens if it affects the school in in one way or another. So what did the court rule in Brandy's case? So the court rejected the school's proposal eight to one. So this is, again, a decision in which you saw both sides coming together, achieving agreement uh, with only one, Justice Thomas, saying that students don't have basically any speech rights. But all the rest said, no, students have free speech rights, and they have to have broader speech rights outside school than inside school for a variety of reasons. One is that the schools don't control students' lives outside school. Parents are the ones who have responsibility over kids when they're outside of school, not schools. And so for the schools to be sort of censoring their speech when they're at home or, uh, you know, at a convenience store on the weekend would interfere with parents' authority. Secondly, um, if kids do not have the right to speak freely outside school, then they don't have the right to speak freely anywhere. Because, of course, schools have to have fairly broad authority to regulate kids' speech in school in order to do their job. If you're in a math class and someone says, I want to talk about the, you know, the baseball World Series, you can say, no, we're not going to talk about the World Series. We're going to talk about math. But the court said, no, if schools had the same authority outside school as they have inside school, then kids would have no place to speak freely 24-7. And then the last thing they said, which I think is in some ways the, the best, which is that schools actually have a affirmative interest in teaching kids the value of tolerance. And the way you teach tolerance is by acting in a tolerant way. To kick her off the team for a year for essentially expressing the kind of frustration that everybody feels at one point or another, clearly a a violation of her First Amendment rights. I do want to also turn to some of the criminal justice cases that were ruled on this term. There there were a number of rulings, right, around drug sentencing and warrantless searches of the home and juvenile life without parole. And I'm wondering, can you, before looking at some of the individual cases, just give us like the overview of where the justices fell on criminal justice rights? I think the answer to that would be all over the lot. So you have cases that were decided six to three with all the conservatives on one side and all the liberals on the other. That's a case involving whether in order to 
impose a life without parole sentence on on a juvenile, the judge has to find that the child um, is permanently incorrigible or not. And the liberals said yes, uh, because life without parole should only be for those who are permanently incorrigible, whatever that means. The conservatives said no, no such finding is required. So that's one where, you know, they, they divided along maybe predictable lines. But then you have a case, basically a George Floyd case, uh, a case involving a man who was uh, arrested for trespass and not appearing in court for a traffic ticket, taken to jail. And then while he's in jail, shackled, a police kneel on his back until he suffocates and dies. And his survivors bring suit. And the court below said, qualified immunity, not clearly established that you can't, you know, kneel on somebody's back while he's shackled to the floor of his cell until he dies. And the court vacated that decision in a five to four decision with Roberts and Kavanaugh joining the liberals. And then you had another case involving uh, a police shooting, a case called Torres versus Madrid. And the question was, does the Fourth Amendment apply to police shooting where the police shoot to stop somebody, but they don't stop the person? The person doesn't stop. He keeps running. Is that a seizure under the Fourth Amendment, which would then require that the police have probable cause and, and, and meet a certain standard before they can shoot? And again, it was decided five to four. Again, two of the conservative justices joined with the liberals to support the conclusion that, yes, every time the police use physical force to stop somebody, they have to satisfy the Fourth Amendment. So, you know, that was 5-4. Well, let's look a little bit at next term, the fall term. One of the cases that the court is hearing is on affirmative action. And I'm a little confused by this because the court just heard a case about affirmative action with the Fisher case in 2016. Why is it hearing another case about affirmative action? Well, it's, it's not clear yet whether they will hear this case, but this is a case challenging Harvard's affirmative action program. The contention is that by disproportionately favoring some applicants of color, they are discriminating against other applicants of color, essentially disadvantaging Asian Americans while disproportionately advantaging African-American and Latino uh, applicants. If the court reviews the case, very unlikely, I think, that affirmative action survives because I think, I mean, we, you know, we could be pleasantly surprised, but I think there are at least five and quite possibly six justices who believe that we should not be taking race into account in admissions to, to universities, period, end of story. And, you know, about 20 years ago, the court said, in upholding an affirmative action program in Michigan, that this should be a temporary thing and it should be gone in 25 years. Uh, and so we're getting close to 25 years and we have a much more conservative court. And there's a, you know, among the conservatives, there's a very strong view, especially strongly held by Chief Justice Roberts, that the way to end racial discrimination is to end discriminating on the basis of race. And that includes discriminating on the basis of race in ways that advantage people of color as well as ways that disadvantage people of color. Given how strongly I think particularly Chief Justice Roberts feels about this, I think there's a real risk that they take it up. And they already have on their docket an abortion case and a guns case. So if they take that up, then they've got abortion, guns, and affirmative action all in the same term. Uh, that is going to be a blockbuster term. 
Well, can you talk a little bit about the abortion case? It's the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. And people are characterizing this case as the first abortion ban case since Roe v. Wade. But there have been a number of other abortion cases, one as recently as last year. Why could this one risk overturning Roe? The reason people say this is the first abortion ban case is that since Roe, the one thing that has been clear is that before viability, before the fetus attains viability, the pregnant woman has the right to decide whether to terminate the pregnancy or not. After viability, the state can prohibit abortion unless it's necessary for the health or life of the mother. But before viability, the rule has always been, it is the woman's choice. So the issue in, you know, in all the abortion cases has been, has the state interfered with the woman's choice by imposing onerous requirements on her or making it really hard to get to a, a facility or making the person, you know, go twice to the facility? It's, it's those sorts of sort of more subtle obstacles. Uh, but this is an absolute ban. After 15 weeks, you cannot get an abortion in Mississippi. And that's an absolute ban. And the question in the case is whether the court should essentially reconsider the core principle of, of Roe, which is that before viability, it is the woman's choice. And so the Dobbs versus Mississippi is a huge case. It's also huge because, you know, it'll be the first opportunity that we hear from Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh on this question. I'm curious, have anti-abortion activists sort of already won a major victory just by the fact that the court decided to take this case? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think they had denied cert in a number of similar cases um, over the years. So, you know, I think the concern is that once Barrett came on the court, they may have enough votes to seriously undermine Roe versus Wade. Now, whether they will or not, you know, I don't think we can say at this point. I think, you know, we need to do everything we can to make clear why they should not uh, overturn or restrict Roe versus Wade. Let's end with gun rights. What is this case and are there larger civil liberties concerns with this particular case? So this is a case about whether uh, the, the Second Amendment protects the right to carry a concealed weapon in public. The court has held that the Second Amendment protects the right to own a gun in your home, but they haven't yet extended that right to the right to carry a concealed weapon in public. And New York says, you know, if you want to carry a concealed weapon in public, you have to show us that you have a real need to do so, and then you get a license. And they're arguing that that's an unconstitutional infringement on the right to bear arms. The ACLU, we are preparing an amicus brief in the case, and which we're essentially arguing that you know, even if there is a right to bear arms, it is subject to reasonable regulation. And one of those reasonable regulations could be to say that you have to have a, a reason, you have to show good reason to carry a weapon in public, because if everyone can carry a weapon in public, it will undermine public order and in particular will undermine public debate. I mean, you know, the notion of the free right to associate, to, you know, express your views, to demonstrate would be seriously challenged if you had to fear that, you know, people who disagree with you are going to be armed and going to be can pull out a gun and shoot you, you know, in, in the midst of a demonstration. So um, I, I think our argument is going to be that First Amendment concerns support the state's, the reasonableness of state's putting fairly strict restrictions on this right.
you know, just to wrap up, we talked about earlier how Chief Justice Roberts wants to appear nonpartisan. You know, as mentioned earlier, he also believes in an incremental change and managed to keep the court away from sweeping decisions this term. Do you think the same will be true for next term, given the cases on the docket? So I think the challenge is going to, going to be much, much greater. The true test of whether they can sort of rise above partisan division will be presented in cases like the abortion case, the guns case, if they take the affirmative action case. Those are going to be real tests of whether the court can rise above partisan division and decide cases on the basis of law rather than politics. So uh, TBD. On that note, David, thank you so much for this wrap up. We're so appreciative as always. And I hope that post this, you get a little break. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong. Stay strong.